All right, on this episode, we see the return of Cal Dietz. Cal has been an Olympic sport strength and conditioning coach for numerous sports at the University of Minnesota since 2000. During his tenure, Dietz has trained athletes that have achieved 400-plus All-American honors, teams that have won 33 Big Ten, WCHA championship teams, and 10 NCAA team champions. Cal has consulted with Olympic and world champions in various sports and professional athletes in the NHL, the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, and also MMA athletes and professional boxers. On this episode, Cal and I discussed many topics. Firstly, I asked Cal how was his COVID experience? What's new with Cal regarding his current thoughts on human performance? Cal discusses the go drill. I asked Cal about the role of neurotransmitters in learning from the go drill. I asked Cal about his assessment process with his athletes. I asked Cal how does he differentiate between a technical issue or a capacity limitation with his athletes. Cal discusses the importance of training the feet for force transfer. And finally, I asked Cal how does he learn? Guys, this was a great conversation with Cal and I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. Cal, you crazy German bastard. It is so great to have you back on this podcast. Oh, I missed you so much, my friend. It was uh, too long. Like, we just need to call and, and talk and drink. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, listen, I've, I've listened to some podcasts you've been on recently. Um, one I just said to you before we hopped online, your recent episode with um, Mike and Brooker. I love that podcast. Shout out to the two boys. So this is kind of a catch up just to like, because I know you're always playing around new things. You're always engaged. You're always curious. You're always being inspired by something, be it your, the research you're reading, be it the application of research you're reading and trying to put it into your programs. So obviously bring your programs to, to the next level or to in, enhance the ability of your programs to enhance athletic development. So it's more so of a catch up. I do have a few uh, items I'd love to talk about before I ask any questions, just tell us how have you been? How was your COVID experience? What have you been up to over the last 18 months since we last spoke? Yeah. I mean, start of COVID man. Like I remember the day, I think when we shut everything down, it was Thursday. Uh, that morning I looked cause I had a hectic schedule as postseason hockey then I was going to the world championships for the women's national team at 47 days without a day off. Right. At lunch, you're like, Oh, we may cancel this weekend series. I come back from lunch. The season's canceled in the USA, the world championship. So I had 47 days that I cleared off my schedule with nothing, now. <laughs> nothing. Right. So I, I'm going from like a guy that has 47 days of straight work, no off season, no, no, not one day off. And then I got 47 days cleared and then I couldn't come back to the office. I had a feeling. So I grabbed all my good stuff, all my testing equipment and everything took it home. And then boom, this, the next day they said, you can't come back in. So I said, okay, so well, whatever. But, and then I read a lot, experimented a lot with my son because he he's 15. So we were training three times a day, six days a week, kind of a Bulgarian style. Cause then, you know, school was shit. It was, I mean, they all jumped online then and they weren't prepared for it. You know what I mean? The teachers, poor teachers. So we were having a good time and training all the time. And yeah, I experimented with him. And then I got back, was able to train kids that summer, but it's just been, it hasn't been there. You know what I mean? It hasn't been the same, but it, it, it's pretty much full goal right now. So I'm pretty, uh, pretty glad to be, I, you know what? I didn't appreciate 
all the interactions I have with, with humans until COVID hit. I enjoyed them, but you're going, wow, how much I appreciate all these interactions per day. I mean, I, I interact with really good human beings. I'm sure if I was in a prison, I wouldn't appreciate that as much. You know what I mean? But, but like, you know what I'm saying? I'm not just saying this, but what you just touched on there resonates with me so highly. And if you ever get a chance to talk to my parents, they'll back up what I'm just about to say, because like, I'm probably similar enough to yourself in that. Well, I'm similar in that I did not appreciate how crucial the little bit of social interactions I had every day was for my mental health. Like I did not really appreciate that until COVID hit as well. Cause I, I wouldn't consider myself a very sociable person, say in a group setting or just going out. Like I'm very extroverted, like this one-on-one, -on -one, but I'd be introverted in like, I'm not someone who goes out like an awful lot to, to gatherings or big celebrations or stuff like that. I'd rather just stay in and read super train. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so like I, I would always consider myself, you know, this whole self-isolation. I was thinking, like, you know, if you'd said that to me pre-COVID, I'd be like, I, I, I should be able to get through that, no problem. But like literally it just made me appreciate like the little bit of interaction I was getting every day when I was going like to the gym, to the facility, seeing the similar faces, you know, going like just the interactions you were having on people that you were just used to seeing on a day-to-day -day basis that you didn't see them for months on end and yeah, I, I completely resonate with yeah. that. It, it just gave me a whole new appreciation for the social aspect of us as human beings. Like, I'll be honest, like I actually had to move back in with my parents for a while because I just needed humans around because I live in an apartment. And I, I joke to you, like I was literally sitting in my apartment, Cal, and like, you, you know, when a refrigerator, a refrigerator kicks on every few minutes to keep the refrigerator cold and it makes that sound like it goes, and then it turns off and goes, and I was like just sitting in my apartment and I was like, if that goes off again, I'm going to lose it. And I literally just went off and I was like, right, I'm gone. And just walked straight out my, I just walked, didn't pick up anything, just walked out my apartment door, locked it, walked straight down to my parents' house about a mile away. And I was like, I can't stay on my own. Like I'm losing my mind. I know. Right. Like the self-isolation. I, I had to do that. I won't say what organization I was with, but I had to quarantine in a hotel room. Right. And I, I, the, the first sign that I was losing it was like, you know, there's, let's say you, you, you crap and there's marks on the back of the toilet and, you know, every grown man that pees stands up and, and, and still even young kids like try to pee off the, 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 the marks. Right. But I found I was drinking more water to see if I could get the marks off. I knew I was losing it. Like everyone will hit those marks. Right. Everyone tries to hit those, those, those ship marks in the back of the toilet to kind of clean and piss at the same time. But I was drinking more water to make sure i could get those off i thought man i actually might be losing a little bit here <laughs> it it is extremely satisfying though when you do get it off yeah it's great it's great <laughs> so just just actually off continuing on just with covid like was it a case with you where like those 47 days right they evaporated and did you just then all of a sudden did you just like turn around look over your shoulder at those like stack of books and research papers and go well at least I'll get a chance to go through all this. So like what, what basically my question is, what did you do over COVID? Like what, what did you do at that time? Yeah, I just started reading the things that I've always, <coughs> that, that stack of stuff and then talking, you know, to coaches and things. And I was able to catch up with people on podcasts and then buy some podcast or uh, people I'm not on podcasts, but just people I need to chat with, look up specialist and you know and just talk through things and share ideas so I, I i think i used it wisely and there was times where you know just being outside 
in the parks. I was able to go there and I had a six mile hike that I went on daily that kind of regenerated myself. So um, just being out in the woods with all the spores and everything and the immune system response, everything seemed to, I, 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 I found getting back into nature is mentally soothing for me. Like seriously. Yeah. That's, that's a big one. That's another thing I can fully resonate with. All right. So listen, what is new with Caldeets? What's new in terms of training? Just what is new in terms of nutrition? If there's anything, uh, recovery, what's new just in all around human performance? Yeah. Um, I, again, I have a list of some things here, but I'll just let you kick that off. What have you been toying around with since last time we spoke? Well, <clears throat> uh, we might as well start with that GoTro, huh? Like yeah, that yeah, is, is yeah. uh, so what for everybody, what the goat drill is, is a basically a figure eight movement that a human will walk through a figure eight is I, I they originally started with infinity walks, right? And you've heard of them, Robbie. And I, I heard them a number of years ago, also from a guy named Dan Fichter. And, uh, they, and, and what they do is it, in an advanced person, they, they basically these infinity walks, you, you focus on one point, let's say where you're starting the figure eight, you focus on a point to your left and you walk through in a figure eight and you keep looking at that point to the left. And they were originally designed to help behavioral kids, kids with, with behavioral issues, kind of what it does is in my understanding, it balances out the brain a little bit, right and left hemisphericity. Like some of these kids might have a really strong right brain or a left brain, vice versa. And what it does is balance them out. And there's some great results. There's entire clinics in the United States with this drill that, that have been founded on and other things, but this is kind of a foundational thing. So what I did was I basically put, use that drill and then with some things with Chris Corfus and we, we kind of talked and then I started experimenting with it and put it on steroids. And when I say that, Robbie, we, we run through that figure eight so while you're running, you're watching an object. And then I did some, some of the things I created was like neuroplexy a number of years ago where you're running, but you're also taking a tennis ball and moving it around your waist while you're running at, at top end speed. And when the figure eight, when I say that, I put like just square or circles, big circle tubing around. So they had to run around, right? For your audience. And you can, it's called the goat performance drill on my YouTube channel. So your audience can, can look at it. There's two videos of it. The second video is more advanced stuff that I created, but Robbie, you're running in a circle, which trains the foot circles, train the foot. Unbelievable. Cause you're leaning as you're running. Right. So the strengthening the ankle and kinesthetic awareness, and then you're watching the object on the wall, the whole time, a fixed object, and you're moving a tennis ball. That's just a couple things I put in there. And then what we do is we actually yell out numbers like 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, 18, that fast. And we will have the athlete subtract one, two, or three. So now he's also doing cognitive work. Because years ago, I found that I, I had a, I was doing like a, just a, I would say a study, but it, we didn't publish it. It was just information on skating, where we're doing a skating treadmill. And when, when the a athlete had to, we, we tested everybody and then we, we watched them skate. Then we had them stick handle on the treadmill, which is a fixed angle and their skating changed a little bit. And then when I added the math like that, uh, I think it was about 11 of them skating really changed a lot. And there was three that didn't. They could do the math and they could do 
the stick handling and the skating changed very minimal. I shouldn't say it didn't, but it did. Those guys went on to make about $150 million in the NHL. Those three guys. So, and it wasn't that, I think it was just an identification tool that they have that ability in their brain that they create, that they could do this drill, do the math. And, and it affected them the least because they could think on the ice, move their feet and hands and then and make plays. That's the one thing about hockey. It's so dynamic. It's one of the most dynamic sports in the world. So you do math while you're moving a tennis ball around your waist, while you're running full speed. And then what I've added, Robbie, was uh, basically I'll put somebody inside the circle. So as you're going around the circle looking for that object, you're trying to, the person inside is trying to block your face. So it's frustrating. Okay, so you're trying to fight to see the object, the fixed object. You're running full speed. And Robbie, what, what happens then when you do this drill and there's frustration is this, there's a neurotransmitter dump of epinephrine, acetylcholine, and dopamine, right? And with these three dumped into the brain because of the frustration, your, neural per, or your neuroplasticity, your ability to learn skill is heightened. So this is a, a situation where at the beginning of all workouts this summer, we ran this goat drill. And what we would do is we'd warm up, do our PR, We'd run one sprint because before every workout, I run six sprints. And when we were resting, so we'd run one short sprint, 20 yard dash, maybe pro agility. Maybe it's just um, a sled push for 20 yards. Then we'd go over and do the goat drill. And we'd do that six sprints and then the goat drill six times back and forth. And then we'd go train. And the hopes is, and you have to remember that everything's a, everything that we do strengths a skill speeds a skill training in the gyms a skill well i'm telling you what we saw was kids pick up new skills faster than they ever did because we went and did this goat drill the goat performance drill at the beginning of the workout and it was crazy how even our freshmen once they started this drill they, they, and I'm not saying they got, I, I thought they got pretty strong, but, but Robbie, they, they were picking up the movements that we were trying to teach them that they'd never done faster because I think we just created that chemical cocktail so that neuroplasticity would allow them to learn the drill sooner. You know what I mean? And it is, it's crazy that I hadn't thought of that, but it, it's almost like a brain, I won't say a brain warm up, but it's, it puts a brain in a spot where you are able to learn skill. So I tell my hockey players, hey, you go out on the ice with a skating coach, do this figure eight drill like an infinity walk. You don't have to do it the way I do it, but just do it stick handling before you skate. So then when he's teaching you to skate, you pick up the skill that he's trying to implement sooner, faster. And, and look, you don't you know, all these strength coaches and all of us want to think that if I make this kid more powerful, he'll be better. Well, if he's in a very specific sport, let's say sprinting straight ahead, usually they'll transfer. But the key to all sport is literally skill. So whether you're a strength athlete or you're a speed athlete or a very dynamic athlete like a basketball player, I know this goat drill. They're all skills. This goat drill 
will facilitate your brain so that it can pick up skills faster. I think too, theoretically, it, it would like facilitate things so you don't have compensation patterns as bad. And so one report to me from one of my pros, and he's a multi-million dollar guy that was doing this drill. He was like, I was on the ice. I was looking at the play to find the puck and somebody had already passed it to me. It went by my feet. I caught it with my hands, never looked down and then took it off my stick and made the pass and never looked down, but I knew where it was. So his, he's, he's telling me his vision is, is, was much better in his awareness of everything because of this drill. Robbie, the, the amount of information that is running through your brain to process your foot placement and everything that's going on in the body is probably roughly about five, 20 gigabytes of movies per second. That's the amount of information they estimate running into your brain. So this, that's normal. So this could be more is what I'm saying, but that's why it creates that neurotransmitter dump into the brain because this drill is high end and my best athletes are the best ones at, at this drill. Now they all get better. So, and then the other thing we've done is you can literally put that fixed point on a pendulum. So, you know, to make it sport specific, you, you take a hockey puck and put it on a string and swing it. And now people are running through that drill, tracking a moving object while they're doing that. And I, I just, I just have told, and then, so I went to a clinic in Iowa this summer, a speed clinic and, coaches came up to me because it's about three months before I posted that on YouTube and they were like, Cal, well, I don't know what this drill does, but it's doing something. And these were a lot of them were high school coaches going coach my athletes. There's something that they swear by this drill. And I'm like, well, good. I just glad, I just don't know if we can quantify what it does. You know what I mean? Robbie on that particular front. So I have a few questions off the back of that. For, and you know me, I like to play a bit of devil's advocate here. Mm. This neurotransmitter dump, are you just hypothesizing that? Mm -hmm. yeah well but science has shown that when you become i think you learn that the biggest thing is you learn when you become a little frustrated and that's when that neurotransmitter dump happens right so this drill will frustrate anybody there's no question right and if you're not frustrated doing it because you're that you've mastered it then then it's at least turn the brain on when i say that and i, I don't even know what the hell i'm saying but you, you'll be more cognitive aware of your environment let's let's put it that way i'm sure your, your reaction time goes up and everything yeah. Listen, I, I and I'm I'm in the camp of if something works and we don't fully understand why it works, I'm still going to use it. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not in the camp of well, if there's nothing, no evidence for it, I won't use it. I mean, yeah. when when Einstein came up with relative fucking um or the the, the theory of relativity, and everyone was like, well, where's the evidence for it? He's like, there isn't, because this is completely brand new. You fucking idiot! <laughs> I know, you fucking idiot! Right? I know. Yeah, and. And look, that's why I release it, because I want feedback from coaches and what they've seen, you know, and just an athlete ability to catch a ball they feel running down the, the field. And yeah, it's just they uh, it's definitely a trigger response to something. And, and look, bottom line is if the kid's more coordinated, then it's a and the biggest thing with this drill, Robbie, people have to realize is it is not there's no single rep, no matter what you do, it's going to be the same. I mean, if you're running through that drill and your eyes are in a different position, you're in, when your foot strikes the ground, your spine stabilizes completely different. Like, think about all the relative things that happen there. Because your eyes in a different position, not, I'm not even talking about your hands and your feet and everything else. Your entire core stabilizes differently 
every repetition. Because that's how much information is going on to stabilize the body like that, doing that drill. So my best athlete that does it, it's smooth, it's fast. It is, it's, it's, it's almost terrifying how somebody can move their hands, do math and catch this. And you're going, I don't know if I can simulate this anywhere else in the world, like with anything that I do. So let's say people say, oh, of course, stability. I'm like, well, do you want to do a plank on the ground for four minutes or, or have your spine stabilize literally every split second adjusting itself to an outside environment like that? What, what do you think is more, more sports, right? Like, I, I'm like, uh, let's just identify really think what things are. So anyway, I don't want to go on a rant for core training, but like, but that, that's my point. It's, uh, yeah. Can I major? I'll tell you what, they'll get better at the drill. Does that make them better at everything else? I don't know. But some of the things we were able to do and how fast these athletes learn skills in the weight room with some of the new things I did, especially like introducing prime times to people, um, the Deion Sanders runs. It was, it was crazy how they were able to uh, adjust and pick those drills up. So next thing with the goat drill then is you did speak about the fatigue you measured off some people. I believe you said like DC fatigue was massive. Off. So I suppose in one way that is one sort of objective measure to see the impact that it's having on an individual's uh, nervous system. Um, so yeah, I'd love you to talk on that too. But I suppose obviously, and you alluded to this on the podcast, I heard you say that. I mean, that's more so to do with this brand new novel stimulus in the brain thing that it's a threat. Obviously, it's going to be very fatiguing again. Yeah. Um, because when you're engaged and learning something that's new, you know, and again, you kind of touched on that too. Like when we're learning, we kind of want to be on that edge where it's it's just challenging enough, but it's not such a challenge that it's an overreach, but it's not again, it's it's like Goldilocks. It's not it's not too easy that like it's basically not helping us to develop and learn anymore. So the fatigue aspects is something I like to touch on. And then yeah. I suppose, like anything, accommodation or adaptive uh, um adaptive resistance or uh, the law of diminishing return just three three different ways to say the same thing how would you go about progressing then that go drill like I, I believe you put the 1080 on for extra resistance i think you also alluded to going from a fixed object to look at something that's moving um is there any other sort of progressions you put in place yeah um well so the one thing about the brain was that yeah i, I measured a, a few and you're like wow did this really tax their it stressed their brain out right so I, and i don't know why that was the case, but it appears now, now I think it a little bit may tie in with this, Rob, is that when I started this drill, people did get sick. Some people did. And that was some of my athletes that had concussions within the last year. So it tells me that there was still some residuals from the concussion problem, right? So what we did is we backed him down. We had him go slower. We didn't do the math. We just basically did the tennis ball and like light jogging around. We did that for one session, one more after that. And then we cranked them up a little bit and they actually seemed to be pretty good. So the stress on the brain in this thing is, is so great and, and they get used to it, but, but without that stress, I don't think you can uh, create the, the, the neuroplasticity environment that, that we want to do, right? So the hopes is that we can create that environment so that when you go train them or they go practice, like this isn't just before training. I would want a coach to like, just throw this into the warm up three to five reps. I mean, I know like a couple of the coaches that talk to me, especially the high school, uh, the youth coaches from 15 to 18, 
we're like our coaching staff is putting this in their warm-up when they separate and break groups so that they can make it sports specific. So if it's not on the ice or it's not outside where, where maybe they're just catching the football while they go through the drill or something, right? Like it's, it, they can do whatever they want. I just think uh, creating this environment in the brain so that you can then be more focused, learn the skills, learn your position better, whatever it is, is quite a big deal. So, and then the, the, the progressions, like I would say it depends. I think at the highest level here, I, I'm not saying at the highest level, but with my Olympians, for example, I, I just threw them in the mix as fast as we could because they got so good so fast. If I was at the high school level, I probably would progress them. Just start with a couple things, let them get good at it. Let them have self-confidence because if you throw the heavy stuff at them, like the most advanced things, everything at once, you're going to go, well, they're not going to be very successful. And you can just see some of the kids get frustrated. Right. So, um, and it's impressive when you see my good, my really good kids or the kids that I shouldn't even say the good kids, the kids that have done the drill for a while and, or the Olympic or professional athletes that, that are just truly athletes when they do it, it's impressive in, in this environment, my, let's say my first year kids that walk in my, my athletes that do it, you're going, they're going, ah, I see this, I got to get there. And you, you'd be shocked how fast when they have the willpower to do it. Like, that's a whole nother thing. Do they really want to do it? Right. Like this drill is going to work if they want to do it and get better at it and try and are highly motivated. Like, hell, that's half the battle. It's like just the motivation level with some of this stuff. Right. Yeah, absolutely. One final thought was, and I've heard Dan, Dan Faf talk about this and that it would have been nice if you could have like, half like taken half of your population and done the done the go drill and not done it with the other half but i because i've heard dan faf say this he's like he he, like when he was talking about you know i uh, he was saying i'd love to do that when i train my athletes but he's like that's just not realistic because you get all the athletes going well why did they get to do that and we don't so yeah like because he was basically saying it, it was basically his whole point is that you know everybody wants evidence and he's like well you know there is evidence-based practice but there's also practice-based evidence as well and again it's kind of like we don't fully know why this works yet but it, there's a consistent trend we see here so that seems to be the theme with the go drill right well the the whole thing too is i mean somebody could go research it and just do what 30 reps a week with a group and not group and just see what happens see what maybe balance i know balance gets better i know balance gets better like you do that drill and you go check balance they're on a force plate their balance is better so but i mean does that happen how much right i didn't standardize it because it could happen from a a good dynamic warm-up which we know it can right just just by doing a cross crawl pattern it helps improve it so uh, i mean yeah I'm, i'm not here to figure that out i you know, I'm here to send it to somebody and say, hey, if they want to call me and say, hey, we're researching this. I'm like, yeah, here, here's what I see. Take a look. I measure this, this and this. Um, but I mean, ultimately, Robbie, I, after 20 years of uh, coaching with everything I threw in this summer, I put the fastest two teams on the ice in hockey that I have um, when we do our on ice skating test and running tests, to be honest with you. But it, you know, it's still the, the dynamics of hockey is that, look, they may all be faster, but they may be skating the wrong friggin' place. So, it does, you know what I mean? You just don't know. I mean, unless you have a sport where it's completely measurable and watered down, like track and field and swimming, then you really can't get a good, good, a truly a good grip where did the program work? I mean, I know it worked to make us faster, but I don't know if it made us better hockey players. So 
Another question now I want to move on to is about your assessments or your diagnostics because you were speaking on a podcast I listened to the exact podcast now it, it, it was one you did lately I'll, I'll have to go back and look at the exact exact one I put in the show notes but basically you were saying that you get an individual athlete and you're looking for their 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 most limiting factor um in terms of like a, a physical quality you know strength power speed and um, yeah so according like uh, we have our biodynamics our biomotor and our bioenergetics and you're kind of looking for the weakest link within those and you just want to fill those buckets and that resonates with me because i was very influenced from a programming standpoint by al vermeil and al's whole thing was that like listen this idea of constantly going through an anatomical adaptation phase or hypertreat and strength and power he's like that has that works in certain in certain contexts or situations. Like when you get an athlete though that's developing, and you only have a very short window of time with them in their off season, you need to find out from your assessment and your diagnostics what is the most deficient aspect in this athlete and go straight away. And you said in the podcast until you're like, if I have an athlete coming into me and it's power, that's their deficiency, not work capacity, not strength. Not even maybe you know uh, speed to a degree, even though like power to support speed, so probably there would be a little bit of deficiency there. But again, you're just saying I'm looking for what their most important factors, and I'm going to train that straight away. Whereas some people might look and I go, "Oh, you can't go straight into power. Like, what are you doing? Like, they need to have a foundation, you know." So maybe just touching your thought process yeah. around that. Yeah, and really, so what transpired, Robbie? I, I call it uh, my my ten twenty yard dash tool. So what where I got this information from was all my old numbers because I've tested kids for what now twenty years, and I remember I went. I mean, we're talking twenty plus years ago. My first year, I had tests on a ten and twenty yard dash, vertical jump, power clean, back squat, bench, everything, and and they were all dated, so I could analyze them all. And then I had pro agility and I had vertical, a vertical jump. So what I did, Rob, was I took the 10 and the 20 and analyzed it. And I was able to figure out that if I had a 10 and 20 number, I was able to figure out that if an athlete needed to get stronger from that, or if it needed to get more powerful, or if he needed to get work on speed. Because I also had some flying 10 numbers too with track and field. So when I worked through that after thousands of numbers, like in the Excel folder, after I in, and had the science guy like take a look at it, I created the, my 1020 tool where, so coach, it's actually the website is free. It's called Performance Made Simple, where a coach can get a 10 and 20 yard dash, the 10 yard split, throw an athlete's body weight. And what happens is it'll tell a coach, and we'll just boil it down to three things, if an athlete needs strength, power, or speed. Now, here's the scary thing with that. Typical periodization, if you follow it, like you were talking with Al, right? And so what I did, if you take your athletes, and what we do is every two weeks we test them with that 1020 tool. And then we look at the results and it tells us if they need speed for their program, power, or strength. And we did that for two straight weeks, two weeks, every two weeks, entire summer. And then we kept track of what the reading was and we can see how they progress themselves through their periodization model, their own periodization model. 
do you know how many people were close to the typical periodization model that that is a standard that most people operate on across the world out of out of it was it was actually only 30 percent of my athletes at the advanced mo- at the advanced like college followed something close to the general periodization model 30 percent. are you ready for this needed it completely flipped so this number this diagnostic that i took every two weeks and, and, and this wasn't me guessing what they needed this was the we do the test and that's what we did and then retrospectively we look back at the results a reverse model is what the other person needed and guess what how do you know what they needed well we found their weakest link we did it and they got faster so they kept plugging away getting faster so the point is is that we've only been right 30% of the time with a traditional periodization model in more advanced athletes if you take young kids coaches call me hey coach i heard your podcast i'm in high school i did this everyone needed strength except maybe three kids i'm like well yeah they're young kids they need strength to get better right yeah and i'm like you're not wrong he's like okay i was just worried i said no no this is exactly as it should be but by the end of summer tell me what they need then he's like well by the end of summer they just need they needed all strength or speed work or speed and weight room plyos all that i'm like exactly how it should be you got them strong enough now you'll get more results from speed so um robbie so i in that 10 20 tool and then the other 40 percent of people were just all over the place they were mixed so we do speed one week and then their limiting factor in the 20 yard dash was that they needed strength so then i added some more stuff into that rob so i i have i have a system where i have 12 timing gates and i it comes to a laptop right so I use the muscle lab and it's, I have 12 timing gates. So I can test, I can test, I, I test two and a half yard intervals if I want on a 30 yard dash, it doesn't matter. So I, I put a five yard in there. So I have a five, 10, 20. And when the five's bad, do you know what that means? That means that's starting strength. What's starting strength? That is isometrics. So if you run a 20 yard dash and you put the person's five, 10 and 20 in there, it may tell you that they need strength. And if their five yard dash is bad, they need isometrics in that strength block that you're going to do. So I can tell you that you need, I I can tell you that you don't need isometrics. So if you're going to do triphasic and you run that 20 yard dash test, I'm showing you how to hack triphasic. You don't need isometrics. If your five's good enough by the standards in that test. And then the other thing I did was I figured out how to hack the eccentric part of it, Rob. With, I do a handheld pro agility. So if it'll compare your 20 yard dash with a handheld pro agility. And if you have, if the formula says you don't need eccentrics because your handheld pro agility is good, then you're set. So I'm showing you how to get away from triphasic and only use it when you need that section of it so it's really a hack because if you let's say you didn't need eccentrics or isos and you go do triphasic you're not optimizing that person and they needed power or speed you're not optimizing that person until later down the road when you could have done speed skipped iso skipped eccentric do a speed block and then they come and then you test them two weeks later and now it says they got faster but they can't stop themselves so now you need eccentrics in your training 
so that they can change directions. So with that being said, um, and just keep testing things, uh, I do, I'll be honest with you, when you train in power, and, and in my world, power is about 55 to 80% load, power affects the other two. So speed is affected when the power increases and strength can be affected, can, power can increase your strength, but strength will have a negative effect on speed, working strength hard, right? But, and, and, but if, as long as you know that, this is the art of coaching, in my opinion, and programming. So that tool, I'm not saying that's the only way to coach, because if you know you got, you know something else about the kid's calendar future, if it gives you a power rating, but you know, hey, in three weeks, he's got a meet that he's always peaked well with power, don't do power. Do speed. You need to, that's the art of this whole thing. It's that, that tool that I just told you about is just giving you some really good guidelines to make the right decision for your athletes, right? And I mean, Rob, I have some more things. If you extended another 10 yards where I'm, uh, I'm really confident, I have it done. I'll probably release it with triphasic two, uh, where the fast switch fibers, I can identify when they need a little bit more work specific fast switch fiber training through a with the 30 yard dash so that's where i'm going um honestly i have a bunch of stuff like that uh, that i got to get to release but ultimately any industry would come in and look at us and go you guys don't have anything to truly test and like give us guidelines and parameters on what's the next move and and most of us would be like eh, yeah and i mean i've been in this field 20 years and just kind of figuring it out right so analyze make sound choices to move the athlete ahead and but this program we run 20s and we may have an iso workout we may have an eccentric workout we may have a strength power workout and speed workout in my gym in 18 different athletes we may have five programs running because of that 10 20 tool and that's how we do it that's how we did it all summer and those are the results that like we can get the best because really it's a rate limiter. If you find the weakest link, fix it, then that athlete is able to, to get their weak link fixed. And then things just keep improving over time. Yeah. That's, that's kind of how I've programmed myself over the last decade. Again, when I kind of got more versed in sort of Al's model and Al's model is basically an adaptation of Charlie Francis's system, but he, he kind of evolved more towards a team sport athlete. So I would basically just from my diagnostics, it would just tell me, right what where is this individual in terms of you know uh do they actually need to put on some muscle mass okay right. what's and then what's next okay do they need general strength what's next do they need maximal strength what's next do they need power and then with power we break that into is it explosive power or is it elastic reactive and then if they have all those ticked off keep and we'll keep going up the hierarchy okay where's their speed at what's their linear speed at and then what's more important then for mm -hmm. team sports would be obviously change direction and then bring a change direction step forward the decision making and perception action coupling when you when you bring it to agility then so i was just kind of ticking off these buckets as we worked up this athletic development hierarchy and wherever that individual needed to spend time is where we went straight away because my off season was only like seven weeks so like right. you know because i get people saying like because because the way you said you had five different programs run i had three basically run at that time and um, with my guys who the most guys were just general strengths some were maximum strength and some were kind of in that um rate of force development sure 
Um, but most of them weren't anywhere near, like none of them were, were developed enough to need to, for a need to focus on elastic reactive or true speed work. They all needed to just get generally stronger. One or two of them needed to get more powerful. And um, most of them are just strength guys. There was one or two guys too who needed to put on a bit of weight too. But for the vast sure. majority, they just found the three buckets. But it just made so much sense to me back then. It was like, what is the rate limiting factor? Go after that like right now. Because again, if we had guys with big massive work capacity buckets, it's like, why would I need to spend more time doing tempo runs and general body weight circuits when this guy's limiting factors is just weak as shit? He has the capacity rate to support uh, you know, a lactic power work in terms of strength and some short accelerations. He doesn't need to spend more time developing aerobic or like any like just basic work capacity stuff in the gym. Um, so yeah, that, that was my thought process too. Uh, just one question okay, question for what you just touched on there, Cal, in terms of that, the 10 and 20 uh, diagnostics. And you were saying you could tell if someone needed strength, power, or speed. How did you know, though, if the person, it wasn't a technical issue? Just like with, that they had the strength, power, and speed, but it just wasn't technical. Right. And, and that's a good question. And when you get into the top end part, you have to have good technical because it'll give you a, obviously a false reading. But I've found that um well with sprinting like if you look at the average the the sprinters elite levels the techniques all over the place and it's really it comes down to wrong power so if it's really really bad sprinting then you you might not want to use the device right but or the tool but most people aren't literally that bad and they can at least run and be proficient and then if you think they're bad well try the quality quality that you got now if it's a if it's a really bad runner, then most likely you're going to get a strength reading right on the shoot. Okay. Because their top end speed will be a little bit better. When I say top end, the second and the 10 to the 20 will be a little bit better is what I found. Um, so that's a very good question. So like in return to play, when you're using this tool, you have to get that person, let's say they had a lower leg injury. You, I, my opinion, you have to get them out of the speed reading. You need to get them through the speed reading into power or a check. I'm sorry. Get them out of the strength reading. Get them into a power reading and speed reading because strength's the foundation, right, Robbie? If I get this return to play athlete out of strength and, and then it gives me a power and speed reading, I'm like, okay, they can probably go. They can go play. If everyone else clears them, they can go play. But if they still have a strength problem, strength problem, strength problem in that tool on a return to play, I don't think you should return them because they're just that inefficient. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Um, but again, most of my athletes are in college and they can run and we run a lot. We do short sprints. So, um, and then technique wise, in regards to that, the top end speed where the technique can really benefit but coming out my kids are so powerful and they're to be honest with you they're bad runners anyway they're hockey players you know what i mean have you ever seen a hockey player run yeah sure i worked at my i worked at my boys training condition and we dealt with a lot of hockey players <laughs> it was bad right like it wasn't great <laughs> you're low on, oh boy but but yeah. but to, to your point though and i fully i can fully concur it was bad but some of them were still fast oh exactly they were fast and because they and i, I think i read a study a while back it was just the the even the world-class spinners, their technique is, is different. If you really analyze them, they're, they're all over the place, but they're all so fast because they can produce power, at least in the first 10 to 15 yards, right? But so it really comes down to how much power you're producing, which, which 
is not that simple because if your hips are strong and your feet are weak, then you're not producing that much power and force into the ground. You know what I mean? It's not really power. It's actually force into the ground. Hockey though, hockey though is a bit of a mindfuck in terms of um, acceleration speed development because it's opposite to when you're on ground, like terrestrial ground, because when you sprint on ground, your contacts go from longer to shorter, but in hockey with the stride, you actually go from short, from shorter, yeah. quicker to longer stride. So, because I, I know Anthony Donskoff touched on that and they, they were just talking about, you know, what general means would you try to use in terms of transfer training? They were kind of talking that maybe like linear bounding might have more carryover to the skate, to the skating than say like more um, shorter ground contact, vertical stuff, maybe more horizontal, longer time on ground stuff would, would have a little more carryover to the skating stride. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And which like uh, why I like to do the prime times for two reasons, like, Deion Sanders run in prime times and, and we can maybe talk about the functional transfer complex that I do. Yeah, but, please, please do touch on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's two things there. One, it, it's uh, more vertical when you do those, if you teach them right, when I say that, or just coach them up. So the main objective is to push yourself forward. Right. Which then um, I can get into the glute pattern and stuff, but, but really so many hockey players are, are a quad dominant type of athlete and and when you add prime times into your program, it helps drive home that glute firing pattern to push them forward versus in their deep squat position. When they push forward, they're using their quads, many of them. And if you can switch that to go back to the glute, pulling that leg through the quads going to still help, but the glute has to be involved. Now, what I found is if I, and I knew for years that the, the, the quad dominance um, was a problem when ha- athletes came in, especially my hockey players. And it probably took me about eh, early fast would be six to 12 weeks to fix it. Right. And when I say that, so I, and how do I fix it? I, a glute ham hyper and reverse hyper right now, when you do the reverse hyper, like I'll, I'll do a contralateral single leg. So when I do the reverse hyper, my athletes will point their toes down to, to fire that glute. So the, it's for everybody listening, a reverse hyper is just you're laying flat and your, your legs are, you're at a 90 degrees and yours is a strap and, and you're picking weights up to get to extension with your, with your leg and you're, you're laying face down on, a, on the machine. So you can look that up. But we do a single leg. When they start the movement, Rob, they, they squeeze their toe push it down and then it initiates it from the glute so when you're doing this and and i'll probably eventually get to a series of courses where because i have a whole thing on reverse hyper posterior chain stuff but uh what i will do is if you're doing that exercise and they start to bend their knee when they initiate the movement you know that they're starting their hip extension with their hamstring and then I check the pattern, which if you go on my YouTube channel, there's ways to check that. And every one of them was a hamstring glute or a hamstring hip extension firing pattern versus a glute initiation hip firing pattern. So, so you, if you're on the hip reverse hyper and you try to bend your knee to start the movement, guess what? You got a problem. Those people pull hamstrings. So then I would clear it obviously with RPR. But, and then this spring when, or last summer, when I came back, I didn't do any RPR to try all this stuff. And what I would do to fix the, over the past years, fix that 
hip extension pattern problem in the quad dominance was I do reverse hyper and glute ham and it took six to eight, 12 weeks. What I found to fix it in two, Robbie, I call it functional transfer complex and it's free on my YouTube page. Functional transfer complex. I would do the glute ham or the reverse hyper and follow those with a prime time Dion, which is a running high speed prime time. And the example I use is one of Chris, Chris's guys that runs maybe 10 one, I think doing a prime time flying down the road at like 18, probably like 17 miles an hour. So that's not what my athletes look like. You know what I mean? But if you do a glute ham and you do a prime time, it drove those quad dominant patterns out of them without RPR and the hip extension problem, the hamstring firing first in about two to three weeks, Rob. I'm not kidding. And I was like, oh my. And I went back and I retested them. I'm like, this fixed these kids. So the way, here's the thing, here's the reason I think it fixed. The reverse hyper and the glute ham hyper are not like natural movements when they say they're too slow for the brain to right would we are it's not sport specific train sport specific muscles i like the patterns but it's not sport specific the kids would get off the glute ham walk down the turf and do a prime time to drive that glute pattern home and then you had some magic happen and you should have seen the kids um right away i knew there was something so about two weeks in some of my better athletes and it's magic when they're doing that prime time. It looks like they're not even moving, like not even moving that fast. But, but what happens here is the glute and hamstring and the calf all come together and snap at the same time. And when their foot strikes the ground, that snap happens and they just propel six, eight, 12 feet down the, down the track. Then the next foot strikes the ground. And I knew there was something. And then everybody within the next week or two was following that you'd see that snap where they were uncoordinated in driving them forward there was that snap that happened between the limbs where everything just like a bullwhip just like shot and they they looked like they weren't even trying that hard but they were traveling so fast down the down the weight room so then we do some other things and we come back they do a glute ham and now how i and it's on my youtube page how i paired that up was if i'm doing a glute ham hyper we're doing a bent knee prime time Deion Sanders run. So when they run, they're doing a bent knee with the glute ham. And then when we did the reverse hyper, since it's a straight leg, we would do straight leg prime time runs paired with the reverse hyper. Does that make sense? And then um, what we did was, uh, what we did for, let's say a kid was working strength and doing a reverse hyper. We did a marching basically prime time with resistance because I wanted that resistance be heavier when we're in the strength phase. And then when an athlete was doing a power phase, let's say he's doing reverse hyper with less weight than he did the strength, he or she would then do a prime time from a start. So it was more power-based. And then let's say I got a, did the 1020 tool with a reading, with a reading of speed, they're doing a lightweight or banded reverse hyper single leg. Then they come over and they do a buildup. So they're jogging close to a sprint. And then they hit that prime time for like at top end speed for like, you know, 10, 15 yards to get three to four reps per leg in. So they do a high speed 
uh, reverse hyper with their glutes firing fast, get off, roll over, do the flying prime time, I call it. And I'm just telling you, their sprint times in these bad hockey players and running athletes look pretty good. And they were the fastest they've, uh, each kid were hit their best this year, but I expected it because all the numbers I had the past two years were flawed with COVID and everything. But I, I don't know if you can get a picture of that. Now, if you can picture that in your head, what the athletes like about it, they feel so athletic while they're in the weight room doing something that seems athletic with those prime times. Just for the listeners, can can you explain what you mean by prime times? Like I know who Deion Sanders is, and, and I know right. I know, but what what do you mean when you? And I know his nickname is Prime Time, but right. Just for the, just what, for the listeners, yeah. So the prime time exercise is really, really as you're running down the turf. Instead of running, you basically do a like it, I, many people call them a straight leg power skip for distance, right? So, uh, what what other terms would you say that 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 exercise is? I mean, anything that comes to mind. That's what I, I call them a straight leg skip almost. That's what I would yeah. call them. Yeah. Yeah, so the athlete is, and, and they're, they're trying to get a really good split. So when I say that, one leg's on the ground, and they're running with it, their legs straight, and they're pushing off while the other one's extending out to get a really good split, and then they're slamming that top leg down to do the same thing. And, and it's, it's, a pretty, uh, it's a pretty athletic, but it's a, it's a really a glute-driven exercise, which caused my athletes in the hockey world to switch from uh, some of them that were quad dominant to glute dominant or to a glute dominant pattern which is what needs to push you forward it, and coaching the prime time a few key exercises was a lot of kids will just they won't think push they got to think push that ground behind them to propel them forward right they got to push the ground behind them it's not a pull it's a push and with that being said i was able to um and rob i i didn't do RPR for 12 weeks to see how this was going to affect my whole team. And it was pretty, it was pretty amazing how it did it. And uh, it took me for a long time because I was the only one in the weight room. I had no assistants, no interns. So it was a very basic program that I ran with this in it, check glue patterns. And then I was like, man, they are all fixing themselves. So I, I was, I was pretty pleased with the results to see that this was a, a case where um, I was able to fix these patterns without RPR. Now, RPR can fix those patterns really quick, but I needed to know that the training was doing it also. And you, it, you said there on the reverse hyper contralateral pattern. So if I'm stabilizing with my left or my left hand, I'm doing the extension with the right leg. What, right what, leg yep. what, what's my right arm doing? Is it uh, I just leave it off. Hanging right? freely, yeah. Yeah, hanging freely because, well, as you know, the whole sling that comes through, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, when you're doing awesome. it, right? And then, um, so like in my courses, uh, I got a few things. So like I'll test them really quick and figure out their foot position for that movement, okay? Um, your eye should be towards the hand that you're going to get a better response. So I'll, like you can muscle test people. So, yep. So, and, and, and this will all come into fishing later um to into my courses later but you know ultimately all these exercises are um very specific to the face so you do it differently when you're in a strength phase for a reason than you would the speed phase but that's the thing like when do you do what and the speed phase is uh obviously the most sport specific when you get into my speed stuff and my peaking manuals where i do all the the high speed leg and and kicks between bands like I'm telling you, that is how I peak all my athletes because that 
And I don't even know if that's causing them to peak well. Here's what I think. If you're peaking with heavy loads, I think you're just causing so much irritation that by going light weights and high in, in fast movements, it's, it's more natural for the body to move fast than it is to move weights heavy and slow. So you're just causing less disturbances with the peaking method than you are with a heavy method of training. Also too, it could be uh, fatigue is being relieved too. You know, the exactly fatigue right. from all the heavy strength work that when you go to sort of peaking phase, there's a bit of uh, that fitness fatigue model where fatigue is starting to drop and the fitness is starting to sort of uh, express itself. Yeah, all the above factors. And and just uh, uh, not only fatigue, but uh, well, fatigue and volumes being dropped, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, it's like, uh, yeah, so uh, there's all these variables, but you know, that again, that goes back to this art of this whole thing is to figure out what's best for what athlete, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So listen, to I haven't got a whole time, a load of time, it's about 10 minutes. Um, and I know that you listen, your, your time demands are always very high, so I won't keep you too much longer. Just you, you've spoken a ton about feet and I don't want to wreck your head on feet, but one thing I did have on the feet was, you know, you've spoken about how important it is to have strong feet to be able to transfer that force from a strong hip or from, yeah, from a strong hip and knee down into a strong foot into the ground, because what is the point in having these very powerful hips and then also yep. making a very stable, strong knee if the foot can't transfer it? And my, the sort of thought that came to my head is someone who's in your position where you're getting freshmen in and obviously bringing them through all the way to senior, so you might have them for four years. Like, surely the majority of those athletes coming in have shitty feet because they've been wearing their Nikes and all their runners. And so my question is, what is that progression like over that that? that you know is there like it might necessarily take four years but what would that progression look like to take those weak feet and just make them iron like this is scary um are you ready for this i went through my general prep phase where we train a 80 station circuit we do and we had done the uh so the the, the method i use to make the feet strong is a spring ankle uh, I don't know if you know anything about that. For your listeners, I think it's on my YouTube page, Spring Ankle. There's five different exercises. Give it away for free. It's in Chris and I's speed manual, but you can just pick it up on the YouTube page for free, uh, the ankle exercises. Now, um, the catch with that, he, here's why I'm, it, it terrified me again that I'd been screwing this up. So we done Spring Ankle, and because of COVID, we weren't doing the highest level where we were pushing on somebody where a 250 pound fat ass coach like myself, right. Would push on 135 pound female and try to break her while she was in these positions. And, and I couldn't, we couldn't do the highest level. We could only have them hold some weight and do it. So we did that all season level two. I went through my general prep phase where we were training an 80 station circuit training barefoot with ankle stuff in it. And then we would run a stadium barefoot they were taught to run with their heel off the edge of the stadium and only their toes hit the, hit the, um, the steps when they were running it. We're talking tens of thousands of reps. We get through the power phase and I think in their feet are strong. We're running barefoot everywhere, warming up barefoot, everything. We go into a, a quick power phase because then we were going to come back and do some uh, recheck them for strength. And I just threw everybody into power phase. We're doing a power exercise with bands on the pitch shark where they're kind of leaning forward. And Robbie, when they start cranking and pushing this power exercise, 
I still saw their ankles collapse. Now we're talking hundreds of pounds of force. And I realized then, if you got a strong athlete in the knee and hip, if their foot, no matter what, I had just done tens of thousands of barefoot running up steps, repetitions, and had done spring ankle level two, not three, for the entire season. And they're, so when, they're, when they decided to push, so the band exercise was with maybe 400 pounds on the pitch shark and with a, and it's leaning forward and they had bands on their shoulders hooked to their feet. When they came down and reversed it, their navicular arch in the foot were, was collapsing seriously. And I went, are you kidding me? How can their feet still be that weak? Because when they're doing other things like running up a step without, without weights and power, I was watching why they were doing it. Their feet were strong. But when you hit the power phase at the highest level, their foot still collapsed. And I'm just, I was going, how have I not seen this before? So I'm just telling you, we, uh, Chris and I, those, those positions that he created with the isometrics, you have to do them at heavy loads, have to complete at heavy loads. But if that foot collapses, if that arch is collapsing, for whatever reason, I muscle test somebody's glute med, it shuts off. I don't know why the glute med isn't turned on then, because I think the big muscles are trying to stabilize the hip versus using that small one. The brain, it's a state of fear then, because there's instability, and the brain's going to try to find stability through a compensation pattern. Because if your foot strikes the ground and it's not stable, you... If your foot strikes the ground, you're not stable, your brain will actually start to downregulate power. So I've been able to find people that aren't like just found that instability. I reset the foot, find the foot problem, it happened to be bones out of place, whether it's a talus. And you get it in place. Now the foot's stable and the power goes up instantly because the brain took the rate limiter or, or took the limiter off because it knew it would break itself or tear itself apart because it's trying to produce power on an unstable surface and your brain's smarter than you are. I, I should say that, right? Like, but it's, these are reflexes, I believe. And those reflexes are wired into you and you can't, I don't think you can override them. Right. So that's the scary thing about the foot is that, so how do we progress it? I start with like long duration minute holds in those five spring ankle positions they can find on my YouTube page. Then we add weight. And then the final one is level three in which we are, you know, as I described some of my best skaters, some of the best skaters, hockey players in the world, they're good because they're great skaters. Like I have a 150 pound female who's, who looks literally looks like her toes are in a toes are on the, uh, on a ledge her foot's probably at a 70 degree angle on one leg in a deep squat position. And she's got, I'm just North of 250, Rob. Right. And I'm which, which would be what um, 115 kilos, maybe 20 for, for everyone else pushing down, trying to break her. And I can't move her for 10 to 15 seconds. She has a strong enough foot, but she's one of the best skaters I feel in the, in the world with her skating, but her foot's stable. So she can stabilize when that's why she's a great, if your foot is injured, what's the first thing that happens and, it, and it's not functioning. 
you skate higher because your brain says, I can't get in that deep position to change directions, to skate, to run and change directions. So I will now have to do it higher. Well, what if your foot's never stable? You just can't change directions. And that's the, the one thing I think a, a big mistake that I've made over the years is not training the foot enough. And I trained the foot, but I didn't analyze it, look at it and realize how, how strong it truly had to be. It's frustrating. What, what comes to my mind there is sort of, you know, the concept of joint centration. So, you know, if, if a joint, if a joint doesn't fully know it's, it's end ranges, you know, it's either, it's either side of its end ranges, well, then the brain is going to have, it, the brain is going to put some limiting factor of force potential around that joint. Cause it just, it'd be like, listen, I don't know the full range of motion of this joint. Therefore I'm going to put the brakes on it. I'm not going to allow optimal force expression. So, with the foot, it kind of sounds like to me, uh, Cal, that if we're not checking people's feet to see if they're in as optimal joint alignment, like talocarule joints slightly off, or there's an avicular that could be manipulated yep. back in, whatever, you could actually just have the athlete go through that, that, that progression and get them to go through loads of thousands of repetitions. But if those thousands of repetitions are done on a foot that's that is already perceived to be in a bad position by the brain, so the brain feels threatened, that's probably why you were still seeing collapsed feet whereas maybe if we get those feet more quote i'm using air quotes here more neutral or neutralized and then put the the the, the slow progression of getting those feet stronger stress yep you know so that the brain's like oh the foot the foot's in a good position we started off with a slow progression just like with fucking i always use the uh the analogy of getting your suntan go out one day for 10 minutes go back in go back yep. out get more it's just simple progressive overload and that the threat to the brain then becomes less and less and notice no different than with, with the foot. You're exactly right, my friend. That's exactly the thinking we have to have. But again, I was a dumbass for years and didn't analyze it as much as I should, right? And, but that's why I talk to smart people like you and Corfus <laughs> and uh, people like that, because then that question, what's going on? And then uh, help you, make you think a little bit. Like people ask me how I make up all this shit and I, it's a pretty simple formula. Um, I tell them I question everything I do, which creates problems I didn't even know I had. And I try to make solutions and that's how I create stuff. And I, I don't think I'm that creative, but by question, everything I do creates problems I didn't know I had. And then I make the solutions and that's how you fix them. But if you don't question what you do or accept other people trying to question you, right, then how are you going to get better? That's a, it's a great answer to the question, um, how are you doing? And you should just turn and say, creating problems, but solving them. <laughs> That's a very good one. Yeah, I want to use that. I create problems. I do, I do sketchy shit and create problems. How's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's funny because in, in one of Mark Manson's books, so Mark Manson's guy who wrote um, The Subtle Art Not Giving a Fucked and Everything is Fucked, they're the, the two books he's famous for. You know, his basic tenets in that book is like, listen, you only he's like life is uh, life is just all about solving problems and he's all like make sure that the problems you give a fuck about are problems that are worth giving a fuck about so he's just like that's all life is problem solution what's the next problem he's like make sure that you are dealing with good problems every day not over like my new things that really don't matter hey I, it's very wise right that is very wise um i know what's uh, um your board back there. I'm sure. I'm sure you got a few of those things in there. Oh, they're just notes. Just, so for the listeners, I just have a whiteboard with notes on yeah, it. Yeah, that's good stuff. I was, I was brain mapping. Cal, um, 
I have more questions here, but listen, we, we can have another conversation yeah. anytime. So I, I'd love to get your thoughts on vision training. But just before that, for today's episode, I want to wrap up with this question because I'm fascinated with learning and I'm always fascinated with mastery. And you're just a, an individual who, like, listen, you're a kindred spirit. You're a brother from another mother. I know, like me, you're just someone who's completely driven by curiosity and always wanting to learn. Yeah. But I'm fascinated with like how people learn their learning styles and basically how they go about mastering a topic. So my question to you is, how do you learn? So just to give a little more context to that, here's a topic. Cal wants to know everything about that topic. Take us through that process. Wow. I mean, I, I've collected all these articles over the years and I have uh, and I'll start digging through them. But it, it's, it's scary because let's say it's just vitamin A. Right. And uh, I want to learn about vitamin A. And I, I realize how you've got to look at, I go to some, try to find the good resources, but then how it interacts and it's usable. And then um, I, I do mind mapping too, because then I'll be honest with you when I, when I, so as I'm reading and then I summarize it with mind mapping, what transpires is that I will, I will then like when I look at that, it makes complete sense at that point. But then I start asking questions. Well, how does it interact with this system? And is it a limiting factor here? And then let's say vitamin A is what diseases appear when you're in, in low in vitamin A, right? So then I ask all these questions around it. And that's when it starts to drive things home for me. And then I can remember something that I read 23 years ago and know what part of the book it was in, right? And go find it, right? So I, I, when you said mind mapping, I, I, I think that's how my mind works also, because that's what I end up doing is going on whiteboard and writing out the subjects, because I, I think a lot of people do it that way. And then I can see it. And then I'm not, and I won't hesitate to call world's expert on something. If somebody's like the expert, email them, say, hey, can I, you know, I'll have a podcast like you, but I, I'm willing to pay people to talk to them and just answer my questions. So what you're paying them for is at $300 an hour, maybe when I paid five, I'm not paying them for the hour. I'm paying them for 30 fucking years of research to help me boil this down in an hour. That's what you're paying me for. Right. That's why books are a fucking bargain. Seriously, seriously. Um, so the, honestly, when I you, you see my pages when I sketch stuff out, like yeah, you you'd probably be the only person to really understand them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe. So. Yeah, because no, I, I I do brain mapping too all the time as well, and uh, just you know, vitamin A deficiency, poor vision at nighttime, and upper respiratory infections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're the common right? ones. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's crazy, and then how it interacts with all the other systems too. I mean, I'll, but and. But, but it's all dynamic. It's all like, I'm not saying vitamin A is the magic, right? But oh, I like, know, I know. Yeah, right. Like we're not saying that, but you need to know these things. So yeah, but, and then just curiosity, man. When I get curious, I can just pick up information. I wonder if drinking more water will allow me to remove the shit off the toilet. <laughs> that's how it all started, folks. That's how it all starts. And that's how it's going to end. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> I love you, man. Hey, yeah. now that COVID's gone, I'm gonna I gotta get over there after the Olympics. I definitely gotta swing over that way. Oh man, listen, there is home and there's hot food and well, there's any type of food and drink and a home here for you anytime. And right. sp speaking of that, when COVID goes, I want to go over to Minnesota, so I do. So hey, I got a house 
we got cheese we got everything we can we'll, we'll just get you straight up we'll just you'll be speaking midwest in like two days Man, anyway anyone that knows me knows i'm um, when it comes to traveling i'm easy going you just a tent in the back garden will do me we'll have i got you covered for everything that's absolutely <laughs> savage Kabir, just for today cal uh just give us a plug when everything you have out there um rpr triphasic yeah. where, where people can reach out to you social media anything you want to plug there yeah um you can reach out on uh my emails cal deeds at gmail uh if you don't hear from me in a week, hit me again. I'll usually get to it. Uh, XO Athlete is a website where I got a lot of free information. My YouTube page, Cal Dietz, uh, you can, should be able to find it. So, and RPRs, I've referenced it a few times. And uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a system of reflexes that uh, help athletes get rid of these compensation patterns. But anyway, that's about it. And I will, um, Robbie, it was good to, to be on here with you. And I appreciate it, brother. Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. I wish we could do this every day, but we you know we have other demands in our times. But listen, uh, we'll yeah. definitely we'll definitely do it sooner than later, and um, it definitely won't wait as long next time. But Cal, thanks so much. I'll say goodbye to you offline for everyone else. As I say at the end of every podcast, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong.